welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Abby Martin. So, this is part two of a two-part series on the Don't Say Gay law in Florida, as well as the multitude of anti-gay laws sweeping the nation. So yeah, be sure to listen to that part one before you pick up in part two. DeSantis actually oversaw it. I don't think this was a bill he signed into law, but it was specifically designed to be like a culture war anti like trans athlete bill that specifically prohibits a male to female trans athletes and even down to the level of high school sports. Now, what's fascinating is the bill actually has language in it that technically could be described as genital inspections uh, are allowed on children, underage children by high school officials. And I don't know if that means they have to bring in like a medical professional or send them to a doctor to get a genital inspection, but you basically are allowed to, if you suspect a, a child like in, high, in your high school you know, sports team as being trans, you are allowed to have like a genital assessment done to make sure that they're actually you know, presenting, I guess, down below as the gender they're saying, even though someone who is transgender could have gotten bottom surgery, so it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But that's actually a law in Florida. So that's so, going to encourage groomers to be. That's what's so odd about stuff. this. Cool. And additionally, Abby, just want to say one more thing. Want to get this point out of the way. We talked about it before. Didn't have a chance to say it on the podcast. But Candace Owens telling people to call the police on teachers and school officials who are talking about sexual orientation to their students. I mean, isn't that going to like actually make more false police reports filed or lower the threshold of like what actual sexual abuse on children is to the point where you're actually maybe even preventing real sexual abuse cases from getting like investigated. I mean, if you're going to muck up this, the system like that, I I mean, it didn't even seem like it was a troll. It really seemed like people were encouraging this type of behavior. So again, it does almost seem like the effect would be actually increasing a pedophile's ability to do things. Well, it just goes back to the whole notion that all of this is kind of a projection. Like a lot of the people who are the most vociferous advocates for the crackdown on LGBTQ, it, I mean, how many times has it turned out that these people are groomers themselves? Just a lot of people have like repressed, maybe pedophile, pedophilic urges that manifest into this really extreme hatred and bigotry. I don't know. Well, it's it's just strange, too, how even the discussion that anybody on the left tries to have at this point, like if you even come out now as like mm. someone who's even like, like say if you're like a therapist or a psychologist and you want to have take this activist position, which like pedophiles are like basically mentally ill and they should not be seen as like complete monsters who need to be like hung and lynched. Mm-hmm. Like that idea now seems more risky to say it's like but it's so weird because it's like that is that should be like the direction like a healthy society should go in is like not that we should treat these people like they need to be like drawn and quartered in the town square that like there is some maybe there's like a way to like mentally help these people to become more uh, healthy functioning members of society it's just weird how like that's off the table now it's just like we just need to fucking round all these people up and kill them like but anyways, it's not even like it's like a weird seeing pedophiles where they don't exist is really the problem here. 
And that's what's strange is pedophilia is a problem and you should be aware of it if you have a child, especially, you know, of that statistically it's most likely to happen in the home from a relative, from a loved one, from a, you know, and like from a teacher too. So there is some sort of like bridge here. I think they're taking advantage of this idea that school can be a domain for grooming and pedophilia. It's planting this idea in people's minds that now talking to kids about what a gay person is, is somehow grooming. I just find that absolutely bizarre. I did not realize, and maybe I just had been fooled by the alt-right marketing of like Milo and, you mm-hmm. know, even like Gavin McGinnis shoving a dildo up his ass with his gaping asshole pointing towards the camera. I just figured that there's maybe a little bit more tolerance, but I guess I was wrong because it's now just like being gay and telling your student about it makes you a pedophile, according to these people. And I'm just like, what? Well, no, you're you're not wrong, Robbie. It shows you again how fake this is and how much it's being manufactured by this kind of think tank industry. Because I want to read an article, hang with me, because it has a lot of a lot of great information. And I just want to kind of lay out the landscape of yeah, the country please. right now. This is written on March 20th on NBC News. Quote, state lawmakers have proposed a record 238 bills that would limit the rights of LGBTQ Americans this year or more than three per day, with half of them targeting transgender people specifically. Nearly 670 anti-LGBTQ bills have been filed since 2018, according to an analysis of data. Um, with nearly all of the country's 50 state legislatures all having weighed at least one bill. Throughout that time, the annual number of anti-LGBTQ bills have skyrocketed from 41 bills in 2018 to 238 bills in less than three months of 2022. This year's historic tally quickly follows what some advocates have labeled, quote, the worst year in recent history for LGBTQ state legislative attacks, when 191 bills were proposed last year. Here's where it gets really interesting based on what you just said. As the number of anti-LGBTQ bills hits record highs, research shows that so too has support for LGBTQ rights and policies prohibiting discrimination against lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people. According to recent polls, nearly 8 in 10 Americans, or 79%, support laws that protect LGBTQ people from discrimination in jobs, housing, and public accommodations. This is according to Public Religion Research Institute survey released last Thursday. That same survey also found that nearly 70% of Americans support same-sex marriage, up from 54% in 2014. LGBTQ advocates and political experts say the uptick in state bills is less about public sentiment and more about lobbying on behalf of conservative and religious groups, which you're about to talk about. Activists contend that the groups have pushed for legislation in response to a string of progressive wins, including, of course, those two landmark Supreme Court rulings, one that legalized same-sex marriage in 2015 and another one in 2020 that protected LGBTQ people nationwide from workplace discrimination. The website them.us breaks down every single one of these bills. Like, for example, the Idaho House passed a law 
that would make it a felony for doctors to give hormones or puberty blockers to trans minors or to leave the state in search of such care, reclassifying treatment as, quote, genital mutilation with a maximum sentence of life Holy in shit. prison. Life in prison. Let me re- let me reiterate this. This is not gender affirming surgery. This is fucking blockers. This is literally we're talking about puberty blockers. Genital mutilation. Of course, the bill makes a special allowance for the intersex forced surgery of a parent to just determine if you're born with both um if you're born with a penis and vagina, a parent can just be like, "Okay, like I have a girl." You know what I mean? It's like that is not even part of this. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. Tennessee has several different bills. It's actually really hard to even figure out what's going on because there's so many bills simultaneously happening in all these different chambers and various stages of the legislative process. But like one of them is about um, protecting people from openly misgendering trans people. Another one is the, the sports stuff. Another one is, yeah, uh, basically fining doctors for supplying hormones or puberty blockers. It goes on and on and on. But this is like Louisiana has a bill that's following in the footsteps of the don't say gay. Idaho is the worst, though. And we're going to get into Texas next. But oh, my God. What can I just say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did say a viral conservative tweet that got like thousands of retweets where it was some I don't even think she was a doctor. She was just like a trans activist in, I don't know where she was from, but she's like, I will offer to supply any like trans youth with puberty blockers or hormones in states where they've like trying to ban this stuff. Like, so please contact mm-hmm. me. And somebody like quote tweeted it and said, okay, groomer. Mm-hmm. So like that's, it's just like being used as a blanket now, like basically, you know, me, like viral insult and smear for anyone who is trying to push back against and not just like even the Florida stuff, but any of these laws. So, I mean, yep. it's, yep. it's pretty wild. And it's like, how common are like trans children even? They, it, it's just this whole dialogue is so, it just feels like a wedge issue, like the trans athlete thing that is just being used to, yeah, shift people into a more socially conservative and reactionary direction. And that takes us to, I don't know if you're, if you had any more to say about that. I mean, yeah, I have a lot to say about the Texas stuff, but I want to get into it later. But the only reason that it seems like a big issue is because finally trans kids are like being able to talk about this for the first time. It's like trans identity has always existed since the beginning of human civilization. In fact, it was revered in more ancient cultures. And it's just been recently that it's been like this scary notion because of the family, you know, the the family unit and the nuclear family and all this like fucking stupid patriarchal, suppressive religious ideology that's been forced down our fucking throats. And basically the argument that they make comes down to this idea of some people regret transitioning, like Mm -hmm. after Mm -hmm. they transition. And based mm-hmm. on that, they act as if there almost needs to be like almost sort of like gay conversion therapy for ch- children who are thinking of becoming trans to like talk them out of it. Again, bleeds into that like socially conservative frame where it's like a reactionary thing where not only is it thinking that kids shouldn't have the agency to decide this, but it's just also acting as if it's this really scary thing. And it's also sex reassignment is not even legal until you're 18. Oh, is that true? 
that's what I was reading in in this article that at least Chase Strangio was talking about in um in Idaho, the one that's really crazy, mm-hmm. the Idaho the, the, about the genital mutilation and stuff. He was just like, by the way, like it is illegal to get like gender affirming surgery when you are not 18 years old so it's just absolutely like hysterical based on just complete falsehoods it's like weaponizing like fake news to gin up hysteria about something that really isn't even an issue interesting well i i didn't know that but that that makes sense because that louis theroux trans children episode which is pretty interesting there were people getting um like actual sexual reassignment surgery and I just think people just have this really irrational fear about it. And it's reinforced again by this whole corporate adoption of sort of woke virtue signaling politics when it comes to LGBT issues. This creates this feedback loop of outrage. Um, even though the corporations doing this are doing it for cynical reasons, I, I believe. So, I- so Robbie, speak to this disconnect with where people are at, like culturally speaking, versus this ridiculous uptick in legislation that we're seeing last year and this year. Well, so what's really interesting is this guy named Chris Rufo, um, not Rufio from the movie Hook. His name is Chris Rufo or Christopher H. Rufo. Um, He is a guy that was sort of on my radar from I think like over a year ago for pulling up and leaking out or providing publicly internal corporate documents and internal U.S. government, I think Treasury Department documents, uh, basically implying that there's this like heavy critical race theory, racial sensitivity training, like brainwashing happening on like even like all federal government employees. Now, looking into him, I found out that apparently he's considered the main influence for Trump passing an executive order like banning racial diversity training like in any federal government like branch or whatever. Apparently this is Rufo's brainchild and he he had Trump's ear at that time. Um he's been on Tucker Carlson a bunch. He's basically taken the lead on pushing out a lot of like the materials that have driven this outrage about critical race theory. And he's planted this idea in people's heads that major corporations are basically teaching like all white employees that they're bad people and that they need to like see themselves as like lower than like a black employee or like self-flagellate and like apologize for white supremacism in these like corporate workshops. That's like the impression that he's been trying to give. So for a while, I just assumed that he was just like one of these like guys like Chuck Ross or some like individual who was just being like fed documents or materials from somebody on the inside who wanted to drum up hysteria. Um, But I didn't realize until recently that he's actually a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which is a think tank that was co-founded by Reagan's CIA director, William Casey. And William Casey is like as CIA as it gets. He goes all the way back to the OSS in World War II um, he's been involved in all sorts of CIA activity before he became a CIA director. Some sort of think pieces and different pieces have come out. One in the New Yorker that credits Rufo with being the sort of origin point of the conflict over, quote, critical race theory. 
How a conservative activist invented the conflict over critical race theory. To Christopher Rufo, a term for a school of legal scholarship looked like a perfect weapon. Now, I was curious this whole time just because, you know, obviously I'm suspicious and implying something by saying that this guy seems to be part of some kind of operation run by this faction of like Iran-Contra CIA neocons, one of them who is long past but co-founded the Manhattan Institute, which he is a fellow of. You know, because part of my radar always goes off when it's like, okay, this feels like some kind of op. DeSantis feels like some kind of neocon plant in a lot of ways, yet he's playing this part of populist. So is Rufo. He also seems like a neocon. But what did Rufo actually put out in terms of like neocon stuff? Well, I found an odd tidbit from this New Yorker article that says Rufo in his early 30s worked as a documentary filmmaker, largely overseas, making touristic projects such as Roughing It, Mongolia, and Diamond in the Dunes, about a joint Uyghur-Han baseball team in the Chinese province of Xinjiang. Now, just pausing for a second, does that sound suspicious to anyone else? I mean, anyone who listens to our program, anyone who follows this stuff, anyone who gets red flags about Tim Pool live-streaming Euromaidan um, in Ukraine for Vice in 2014, anyone who gets red flags about th that should get red flags about this. Because basically the New Yorker guy is saying he's an unconventional but a savvy choice for the leaker to select, meaning whoever's leaking him these documents seem to have chosen this guy and it's a savvy choice. I don't know, I find it a little peculiar that this guy just kind of comes out of nowhere being this chosen conduit for all these leaks that fuel this fire and he sort of cut his teeth doing documentaries in China about the Uyghurs. Look, there is some weird strain of the populist right that merges with this sort of neoconservative engine in D.C. that's gunning for war with China. I mean, even Fred Kagan said it in that clip that I played a couple episodes ago. He said, people in D.C. are focused on China like a laser beam. So why are we sitting here thinking that sort of this populist right faction is somehow genuinely in opposition to this larger sort of engine of the military-industrial complex. We've all understood how powerful this military-industrial complex slash deep state engine is, so why wouldn't this engine try to capture the populist right and try to infiltrate it and try to just use it for their own agenda? Of course they would. So it's just, to me, interesting that this neoconservative think tank, the Manhattan Institute, co-founded by Reagan's CIA director, and let me jump in here really quick to talk about who this guy is. William Casey was Reagan's CIA director from 1981 to 1987. And it's really disturbing when you look at some of these quotes that he laid out there. And this is before like the complete takeover of the press, the billionaire consolidation of our media landscape, the working together with the national security state and these tech giants. And this is what this dude said. We'll know our disinformation program is complete when everything the U.S. public believes is false. I mean, when I first saw this quote, I actually thought it was fake because of how over the top it is. Like you see these quotes floating around a lot in fringe politics, but this is a real quote, right? This is a real quote and it's something that he said 
out loud in a room with several other people. And it really just sounds exactly like the scorched earth information landscape that we're wading through today. Like the fact that this guy said that is just super eerie and it hits way too close to home from the space that we're navigating right now. But Robbie, talk more about Chris Rufo. This random guy, Christopher Rufo, who works for this think tank, the Manhattan Institute, this fellow at this think tank is now involved in basically being the center of generating another controversy, not about um, corporations teaching racial sensitivity training and getting people all hysterical about that, but now he's leaked documents and the timing couldn't have been any more perfect. He also used to work for the Heritage Foundation back in the day and the Claremont Institute, which has a member of PNAC on its board. He, all of a sudden, right after DeSantis, you know, fires back at Disney and says, you guys are, you know, in bed with the CCP, Rufo leaks internal video, Zoom call internal meetings of like high up creative people at Disney who, who are behind creating content. I think people at Pixar might have been on some of these videos, internal videos of people basically at Disney uh, saying that they are trying to incorporate pro-LGBT things into their like content that they're creating. And some people who are leaked in these video calls even say things like, you know, I want to have like a 50% uh, like over the characters represent some kind of like LGBT or like trans. Like some person on the video call who was an employee of Disney said, my child is pansexual. And that comment specifically like really triggered a bunch of people on like the groomer thing again. Like people couldn't even comprehend. I mean, like I even, when I heard that comment, I'm like, that's a little weird that parents are having, like, I don't know how young this kid was that would identify as pansexual. If it's like a eight-year-old, like that would be sort of weird. I don't know. Like I, I would have to think about what that means. But like the way the conservatives were reacting to this internal Disney thing is just like, oh my God, Disney are grooming children. And this like amplified the grooming thing to like a level that was like just locked in to a point where it exploded uh, to a level that I don't think I've seen since QAnon. And I don't think QAnon ever got to this level either. So you literally now have all these internal Disney videos going around that I think represent almost like kind of a pathetic, desperate attempt for these employees at Disney to feel like they're make, doing some good in the world. And they're doing it from within the prism of like a corporate serfdom system, you know, and so it's like on some level, these corporations probably give them a little pat on the head and be like, yeah, yeah, like we want to represent LGBT culture too, because it creates this feedback loop of solidarity between the corporate, you know, tops and the employees. It makes them feel like they, they mean something. And I think that that's mostly what it comes from. Um, and a lot of these companies are... California based. They are Bay Area based like Pixar is. So you are going to have a lot of just organic representation in these companies of like LGBT people in general. So yeah, a lot of creatives are working as animators and storyboard, you know, um, authors and stuff like that. And these companies either exist basically in the Bay Area of California, notorious hub for LGBTQ identity and Los Angeles. And so, yeah, it's not surprising that a lot of the employees are wanting to advance these issues. It's a good thing. Um, and it is 
actually sad. You articulated it perfectly. It's actually sad to see this kind of small inroads that these employees are trying to make in any facet that they can, knowing overall that they can never challenge like the corporate structure or basically their eternal serfdom working at a place like Disney or Pixar. You know, they can pat themselves on the back and be like, okay, like I politically advanced, you know, this like overall conservative corporation because I was able yeah. to put in, you know, something about LGBTQ people. And really, at the end of the day, I think that they all know deep down that that's really the only thing that they're able to do. And it's only because of that feedback loop that you're talking about. It's only because that they can then turn around and sell those products to well-intentioned liberals who think that something as simple as representation means that we are in a post-homophobic society. (laughs) Of that too, for sure, yeah. And it also, I think, there's probably a lot of silver linings for these corporations too, like they could probably all it probably also gives them a little less liability to be sued for discrimination because it creates this impression that it creates more of like an optical shield for them to seem like there there's no way they could be discriminatory against like gay or people of color you know for example so i think there's there's interesting aspects to it that i don't think people explore enough because it's become this just weird weaponized culture war issue where it simultaneously feeds into this populist right frame where it's like going against the elites, like going against like Disney, you know, seems to be going against this elite faction. But in reality, it's really not. It's just sort of using Disney as an avatar to sort of amplify a very manufactured, in my opinion, and scary version of like a anti-gay hysteria culture war that is really uh, strange. And when I say strange, I mean... It does seem like it's driven. Well, it is driven. This guy, Christopher Rufo, how is he getting these documents? Yeah, so what, who's this James O'Keefean dude, and how did this happen? Well, okay, so he himself, um, like I said, he's from the Claremont Institute Heritage Foundation. He also, which is strange because you would think, okay, this guy's trying to you know, eliminate um, sort of identity politics or any kind of like um, indoctrination in institutions like he's that's you know going against critical race theory training for example is like something he's really prominent about but yet he actually worked for a christian think tank uh, called the discovery institute and advocated for intelligent design to be taught in public schools uh which is i, I think is interesting because it's like well if you're against critical race theory but for putting intelligent design in public schools that seems quite contradictory so I, I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> but when I say he's like front and center of being a part of this controversy, he's not in the news cycle. All he did was he provided these leaks in in two instances, the critical race theory stuff that he leaked. And in this instance, is all these internal Disney Zoom meeting videos that he leaked. And nobody's really talking about him. And it just sort of became this right wing uh, issue that really, really blew up online. So you have this two sides of this happening where it's like Rufo, you know, releasing all these things that are seemingly completely helping and inflating DeSantis's profile. But up until this point, it seemed like they were separate entities, like they weren't actually working together, even though Christopher Rufo seems to retweet quite often um, DeSantis's spokesperson, Christina Pushwa, Christina Pusha. 
And just a few days ago, Chris Rufo himself appeared with Governor Ron DeSantis on stage and did a speech with him. And he tweeted, it's an honor to stand with Governor Ron DeSantis and celebrate the signing of the historic Stop Woke Act. The legislation strengthens civil rights laws and bans schools, corporations, and government agencies from promoting race essentialism, collective guilt, and, rad and racialist abuse. At the end of my speech, I gave a direct warning to Disney CEO Bob Chappick. He must immediately terminate the company's critical race theory training program, Reimagine Tomorrow, which is now illegal under Florida law. No more racism in corporate America. And let this be a warning to CEOs across America. Since the release of internal videos exposing Disney's plan to inject gender ideology into children's programming, the company has lost $41 billion in shareholder value. Going woke is starting to look like a risky investment. And also, Chris Rufo sort of gave up the plot a little bit in another tweet where he made it clear that this was about basically ending public schools. It's time to start privatizing schools. But what's the larger message underneath all this, even though a lot of people are similar to the Elon Musk thing, cheering this on like it's a fight against corporate elites by this populist government or governor, Ron DeSantis? What is really underneath this? Because it does seem to have cost Disney an enormous amount of money to remove their tax-exempt status as a seeming punishment for them just releasing a statement, which seems just like a bullshit statement anyways. So what's really going on here? I mean, saying that this is some kind of op done by, you know, Iran-Contra players is pretty vague. Well, I think if you zoom out from it a little bit, I think what you're seeing happening here, there is a danger with harnessing too much populist energy and directing it at corporations. Corporations who are hurting communities, paying very low wages, squeezing workers, because those are things that people can rally against collectively, it's even across partisan lines. But what this does is it sort of steers people's mindset away from those things. And now corporations are basically like pillaging society and the planet towards this idea that corporations are too woke. It steers all this outrage in society, especially among the right, towards this idea that the elites are too woke. That's a problem. Not that they're too rich and that they don't care about people. It's that they're too woke. And I think that that's very important here because that could be the switch that could be this part of this op. Because all, I mean, the CIA, military industrial complex, these factions in the United States system, they don't want to go after major corporations. They have really no interest in it because it really hurts their bottom line. I think that it's very notable that this virtually unknown figure who cut his teeth doing documentaries in China, one of them on the Uyghurs specifically, is now front and center as being the conduit for all these leaks. He's basically like the Glenn Greenwald. Imagine, like, what's the last time you had a bunch of leaks that went through, like, one guy that moved media this much? I, I would say it was probably the NSA leaks from Glenn Greenwald or the WikiLeaks DNC leaks. But this seems to be like moving and steering the entire right-wing media circuit right now. And I think that that's very notable, that this completely unknown guy has been chosen to be the conduit for that. He's a cutout of some kind. What power faction does he represent?
Disney was also recently criticized in the news. In the Dumbledore uh, movie, there's like a Dumbledore movie that just came out that's like a Harry Potter prequel. They like cut out two scenes where the characters mentioned that they were gay in it for like the Chinese release. So that became like this big controversy on the right. It was like Disney's hypocritical. They're cutting these scenes out of their movies that have gay characters, but yet they're going against Florida. Well, it's like, of course they're hypocritical. Like Disney is not going against the Florida don't say gay bill because they, the corporation itself is like, gives a shit. It's just like a PR move for them. So yeah, they're hypocritical. That's not news, but like people, all these right wingers have come out now and, and, and just escalated this rhetoric saying stuff like this guy named Michael Berry, who got about 5,000 retweets online, says, China's CCP told Disney, don't say gay, referring to the scenes that were cut out of this Dumbledore movie, and Disney closed their little groomer mouths. Wow. And here's just a random tweeter that's just getting into an argument with some of the people uh, pushing back against the don't say gay bill. He says, you are a mistaken groomer. I'm the one who wants to ban the pedos like you from schools and being around little kids. You're the ones that want to explicitly allow the grooming, but you knew that. Don't worry. There are solutions to the groomer problem. And it shows a wood chipper. Uh, <gasps> and then, so I'll just re read a couple more tweets here. Give me a second. Jesus. A person named Carol Markowitz from the New York Post and Fox News says, I don't call people groomers, but I would love some of the pearl clutchers over the term to notice the other side casually calls people on the right fascists on TV like that's <laughs> no big deal. So, I mean, it's honestly, it's, I mean, so that act maybe kind of explains some of the cynical usage of the weaponized terminology groomer. Like this person saying, I don't call people groomers, but she's basically saying she can understand how it's become like weaponized because it's like they've called people fascists on her side, right? Right. So Blair White, this sort of trans viral right wing celebrity uh, who was on the Joe Rogan program a few months ago, tweeted, the people who spent six years calling anyone slightly right of center a Nazi are offended that you're accurately calling groomers groomers. This one really surprised me because this guy, uh, James Lindsay, uh, he's kind of from the think tank circuit as well, kind of like Christopher Rufo. And he's just commenting on a video of a Disney walkout where they're just like protesting the don't say gay bill. And he comments, groomers at Disney, exclamation mark. Good thing it's not the kind of place you take your kids. Yeah, I mean, this guy's a total fucking psychopath. Um, I was looking at his Twitter after you brought this to my attention and I realized that I had blocked him a long time ago. I, I'm too lazy to figure out why I blocked him, but I remember him saying some really outlandish, like crazy shit to me after I went on Joe Rogan once. And... Yeah, so I already hate this motherfucker. But like, yeah, I mean, as far as I know about this guy, James Lindsay went from being the semi-respected like mathematician. Maybe he was never respected. Who fucking knows? But basically, he started off as an academic, like kind of like Obama type guy. Like apparently he voted for Obama. And then he pivoted to the obsession with culture war stuff, co-wrote a book called Cynical Theories, which tries to conflate like the study of anti-colonialism with queer culture, with critical race theory, and with so-called fat studies, I, I shit you not, together. And I would rather drink paint thinner than read that book. You know, this guy called Trump an extremist in 2016, yet six years later is like a QAnon 
hyperbolic dump fuck constantly calling people groomers. I mean, just check out some of these tweets because it actually is scary. He's literally quote tweeting as a state senator who's saying, I'm not a groomer. You're just an asshole. Hashtag LGBTQ, hashtag queer as fuck. And he's like, that state senator groomer, to be fair. Okay, so literally calling state senators pedos because this woman is just like, I'm not a groomer. You're just an asshole. Um, He's calling the Trevor Project groomers and the crisis hotline is a groomer project. It's an LGBTQ advocacy organization. And it provides a way for children to chat with their counselors that includes may disown their children for being gay or talking about certain things like that. So it is actually important to have a secure line of communication with a counselor if you feel like you're in a hostile family environment to explore these issues. And so James Lindsay quote tweets Trevor Project and he's like, because it's a groomer feature, groomer. Like, all right, dude, are you lobotomized or are you just like a fucking little baby? who criticizes him by saying you're a groomer. Like literally that's just his his thing now. He's just calling every single person basically a pedophile. I hope these people sue him actually, but you know, nothing's gonna work because whatever. Um, this other little teacher who's holding up a placard saying prioritize the safety of queer kids over the discomfort of adults. And he puts this guy on blast and he's like, prioritize the safety of all children over the employment prospects of groomers suckling from the teat of QAnon. Just totally fell into the vat of Kool-Aid, dude. There is no going back for this dude. He's done. Yeah, amazingly too, this douchebag hangs out with a Nixium cult member who is still close with child predator Keith Raniere. Um, I shit you not, dude. Like, the story keeps getting weirder and weirder. Nikki Klein, who basically is still fully in the cult, she continues to defend Keith Raniere after he was charged and is like in jail for the rest of his life. The Nixium cult is really fascinating. If you haven't seen it yet, check out The Vow on HBO, but it actually is way crazier than that. If you check out India's testimony, one of the other victims of the cult, basically this cult leader, very charismatic guy, um, you know, basically seduced all these women to be incorporated into this self-help new age cult. And really, at the end of the day, he just wanted to control a bunch of women and men. And then he ended up putting them in mini cult subsects within the larger cult, branded them, and then basically was running like a, a, a sex trafficking operation. Crazy ass story. Um, this woman is still full fledged member, probably goes outside and like yells stuff at Keith's fucking window in the prison that he's at. There's a lot of people who go and like do like interpretive dances and stuff outside of it. But basically, long story short, is that she's friends with this guy. She's somehow friends with this guy. And guess who else she's friends with, Robbie? Nico House and Jack Posobiec, baby. The story just keeps getting weirder and weirder and weirder. The active Nixium cult member is just hanging out with Nico House, Jack Posobiec, and this guy, James Lindsay. And they're all trying to take down the groomers, baby. The QAnon pedophiles. Even though this woman is actually in a sex cult that groomed children. Weird. Isn't that strange how that works out? I do not remember this guy even like four months ago saying anything remotely like this. I, I really think that's an indication that the rhetoric has escalated to a degree where it's like now these think tank suit wearing right wing dorks are literally calling teachers in Florida who are protesting against this bill and like all of Disney groomers, <laughs> which is just unbelievable. I don't want to be in a position to defend Disney ever. Like, I'm, I'm never going to defend Disney. But it's just such a weird in for them to, like, go fucking hog wild on otherizing anybody who's a liberal.
to the point where I, I just, I'm just like, damn. So really queuing on was some kind of stepping stone in a way for this. Yeah, you know, I asked my friend who actually is an animator at Pixar to comment on this situation, and he he left me an interesting little voice memo. One interesting thing that this guy told me also is that since the 40s, Walt Disney has been, like, extremely anti-union, um, going as far as unfriending his animator buddies that join one, working with the FBI to help Hollywood blacklist writers associated with the Communist Party, and this, my friend also was just like, yeah, he's like the fact that I know that Disney, like the corporate chain at Disney is like anti-gay. Um, and at first they like did support the bill. So that's just what he, th- he said, just an interesting insight as someone who works in the industry. Well, I was just reading something recently and, and this is probably not a surprise to a lot of people, especially if you're a queer person and you've, you are a fan of Disney or have like, you know, watch Disney things or been a fan of Disney animation movies over the years, you would notice, especially as a queer person, that a lot of the villains in Disney movies, even going back as far as like Snow White, seem queer coded. There's seemingly a reason or an explanation for that, which was that you can have gay acting or characters that seem gay or like lesbians in movies like that back then in the past, but they had to be bad characters. And look, you will notice there are like, there's definitely some like queer coding to like Jafar and Aladdin, yeah, even some of the later Jafar. Disney movies. <laughs> I mean, all, of, pretty much like all of them, like honestly, like no joke, like literally like the snow, the, the witch in Snow White, she seems kind of lesbian coded in a way. There's a, there's all sorts of, I, I think, references to all yeah, you know, Ursula. Yeah, Ursula. And what's interesting is that, seemingly was like a policy for Disney where they had to make uh, the only way they could have that in there was villain coded. Now, later on, uh, it was revealed that an actual gay employee of Disney was responsible for like a lot of the modern ones like Ursula, uh, like Jafar. And he did it as like a pro LGBT thing, according to him. So like, I don't fucking know what to make that other than, you know, within the confines that you're working in, if that's in your head, what you think is like pro LGBT, I guess it just shows how think times have like really changed because it's like obvious that there is some there is something like gross about like a gay coded villain, you know, especially one that's like not even openly gay. That's just like, oh yeah, that villain's like it's like a feminine fucking like <laughs> psychopath, you know, who wants to take over the world or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's no way that a corporation like Disney would be doing this unless they were doing it for some kind of financial benefit to them. Exactly. It's just really that simple. You know, the Trump era, I really do think, pulled out a lot of this virtue signaling optics from these corporations. I, you know, heard from a lot of people who worked at companies where a lot of even like the people in the the boardrooms all of a sudden like acted like they were woke. It's superficial, but it's like that's how they think they need to act now. You know, even some of these like elites that want a virtue signal. The institute that Christopher Rufo is a fellow for the Manhattan Institute, it's not just because it's co-founded by a CIA director for the Reagan administration that I think that this whole thing could be some kind of op that is being steered by kind of classic deep state factions of the U.S. government. And why would they be doing that? I don't know if this is for some kind of strategy of tension thing or just some kind of divide and conquer thing. I, I don't know. 
I do feel like there's reason to suspect that this isn't just some typical conservative move, especially because someone like DeSantis is also a big player in this. And I do think he is very suspicious, Buttigieg-esque, if you will. Now, the Manhattan Institute, just a little ba- a more background on William Casey, he was also Reagan's campaign director. He also was responsible for brokering the deal between Reagan and George H.W. Bush to take the VP slot. Now, of course, George H.W. Bush is also a former CIA director. Make of that what you will. Uh, he was also involved in Iran-Contra. He was the director of Central Intelligence from 1981 to 1987. So imagine the crazy shit that happened in between those years that he was behind. The Mujahideen, Iran-Contra, all the stuff in Lebanon, so many different things. Another strange aspect of the Manhattan Institute itself is that after 9-11, this is according to Wikipedia, it says the Institute formed the Center for Tactical Counterterrorism, the CTCT, later renamed the Center for Policing Terrorism. The group was requested by the NYPD to provide research into new policing techniques with the goal of retraining officers to become first preventers to future mass casualty attacks. Now, it also apparently pioneered the broken windows theory. This was like a landmark Atlantic Monthly article called Broken Windows in 1982 of the Manhattan Institute, like written by like a fellow of the Manhattan Institute for Atlantic Monthly back then. As you mentioned, this theory was introduced in the Atlantic back in 1982 in an article titled Broken Windows. A man named James Q. Wilson, George L. Kelling first wrote uh, this. Social psychologists and police officers tend to agree that if a window in a building is broken and is left unrepaired, all the rest of the windows will soon be broken. This is as true in nice neighborhoods as in run-down ones. Window breaking does not necessarily occur on a large scale because some areas are inhabited by, de- by determined window breakers, whereas others are populated by window lovers. Rather, one unrepaired broken window is a signal that no one cares, and so breaking more windows costs nothing. Yeah, I mean, basically this article received a great deal of attention and was very widely cited in future works, basically trying to prove this theory that over-policing like poor neighborhoods was justified. This theory is also very problematic. This has been exhausted, and I'm sure the listeners of this podcast understand why it doesn't make sense, but I'll just read a segment from PBS about one Newark PD's relationship with the minority community there and how little it did to reduce crime despite the absurd amount of over-policing, regular handing out of citations for very, very minor offenses to the minority community there. So this is what the article says. Quote, Newark's blue summonses were rooted in the 1980s era theory known as broken windows, which argues that maintaining order by policing low-level offenses can prevent serious crimes. But in cities where broken windows has taken root, there's little evidence that it's worked as intended. The theory has instead resulted in what critics say is aggressive over-policing of minority communities, which often creates more problems than it solves. Such practices strain criminal justice systems, burden impoverished people with fines for minor offenses, 
and fracture the relationship between police and minorities. It can also lead to tragedy in the case of someone like Eric Garner, who died from a police chokehold after officers approached him for selling loose cigarettes on a street corner, something that should have never resulted in anything more than someone saying, you can't do that here. Absolutely insane that this theory has been taken seriously and adopted by so many police precincts across the country. It was put into its first major large-scale test in the mid-90s by Rudy Giuliani. So it's just sort of fascinating how plugged in this think tank was, not just to like formatively creating like Rudy Giuliani's political persona of being like this guy who cleaned up New York. And it, I guess they even created the broken windows theory. He, this Manhattan Institute institution was also fundamental in working with the NYPD on counterterrorism. And there's photographs you can find of Bernard Carrick, Rudy Giuliani, and all these people who are frankly have very suspicious potential roles in the 9-11 attacks, working with people from the Manhattan Institute on counterterrorism. So again, I'm not saying that just because this thing was co-founded by a CIA director, that this means that Christopher Rufo is part of some kind of intelligence op, but it is strange how many things that this think tank has been involved in that seem to kind of run in that direction. And they also have been involved in pushing back against CRT. So very recently, you know, they've gotten involved more in the culture war. It's not just Rufo who's doing it. And other notable Manhattan fellows over the years, and they also have an outlet called City Journal that some of these people wrote for. These are the people who are, I thought were worth mentioning. Judith Miller, um, an adjunct fellow. Charles Murray, a uh, former senior fellow, Bill Crystal, Board of Trustees member. I don't know if he's still involved. It would be interesting if he was because he acts like he's a really big liberal now. Uh, John Avalon, former senior fellow. He's also a Fox News guy. Rick Baker, former mayor of St. Petersburg, Florida, which is interesting. I just find that interesting that there's even like a Florida guy in there in the mix. And David Frum, who, of course, is the you know <laughs> chief neocon Bush speechwriter. Uh, in the Bush administration. So, <laughs> like, I guess the overall thing I'm trying to explain here or trying to get to sink in for people is how has this happened? How did it go from the extreme QAnon MAGA base, uh, this belief that liberals are pedophiles, how did this deliberate extension happen of that energy from the QAnon MAGA base to just the more mainstream media, like think tank centric, right wing, intellectual dark web world. How did that happen? And I think it happened artificially. And I, I don't know what purpose it's serving other than just like divide people. It's, it's really fucking crazy. And, you know, look at Donald Jr.'s timeline right now. Look at just type groomer in Twitter and you'll see what I'm talking about and how many people are using this as a new weaponized term. I mean, it is really fascinating when you realize that it's not necessarily constituent-driven bills, although I do understand that, you know, a lot of these people across the country that are very separate from, like, city, you know, diversity and other types of people, and they're living in kind of more remote areas, I completely understand how if you're just watching Fox News or you're listening to right-wing talk radio on your commute— that you do think something like CRT or trans youth 
playing sports is like such a huge issue because you just you know what you're told it's like they're constantly leading all of these people into this manufactured outrage cycle um but it does seem like a lot of these bills are not constituent driven and that it is being funded on this national level by these insidious shady conservative neoconservative think tanks um Aside from the one that you just mentioned that has this crazy cast of like war criminal characters on it, there's the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Heritage Foundation, of course, which you mentioned, I think, and then the Family Policy Institute. And like these are the all of these bills are being drafted by these think tanks and basically just in, an, in a nationally coordinated way. Similarly to the anti BDS stuff, like you said, there is a very similar flavor to throwing all this shit at the wall, seeing what sticks, knowing even that they flagrantly violate like the constitution in some regards or our rights or like the abortion one, for example. It's like, it's just this huge success of all of these legislatures passing all these crazy ass bills. And then it's like, they're just institutionalized. And then you just need someone to put themselves out there to actually challenge them. Um, which is so crazy. It should be the opposite, where it's like you can't pass bills like this if it's like so blatantly a violation of our civil liberties. Um, but it really does show you that this is this is a talking point that's being used not only with the far right rise in this country, this culture war nonsense forced into this wedge issue to distract from real issues that could unite people against the ruling class it's also worldwide and you see this with like russia for example i mean the fact that like putin continues to talk about like gender perversion and give all these nods to the west of like infecting you know their country with this like perverse um degenerate ideology of like transgenderism you know and what's funny is like like, right after the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia had decriminalized all same-sex activity, which was a full decade before the U.S., which brings me to, I guess, the militancy that was a current that drove so much of the LGBTQ struggle in this country. And it is, like, only until the last few decades that, it, that a, a big faction of it just became all about acceptance into mainstream culture. And so there was a huge rift like there is with all of these groups, you know, like with um, black identity politics, like the, the militancy of like the Black Panthers, it kind of separated off into how, you know, just representation and things like that, because the militancy is completely removed and all of these ideas are defanged of their revolutionary potential. Um, and I guess I'll just I'll just explain the history, too, and then I'll just end with what's happening in Texas First, let's establish how criminalized being gay was up until relatively recently. Reading from The Guardian, in 1952, the American Psychiatric Association included homosexuality in its new diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders, classifying it as a sociopathic personality disturbance. At the time, already in decades prior to this, castration along with conversion therapy, was very frequently administered to self-identified gay men. Um, I think at the time, in the 50s, you would be registered as a sex offender, like a lifetime sex offender as well. Meanwhile, in the 50s, Joe McCarthy um, 
anti-communist Joe McCarthy was basically using this this like new incorporation of homosexuality into his campaign against the left. So it was like he he basically linked together communists and homosexuals like as the same deviant, subversive, you know, mm-hmm. subsect of American society. And like there's a, a quote that he said where he was talking to reporters and he said, quote, if you want to be against McCarthy, boys, you've got to be either a communist or a cocksucker. Jesus Christ. At the next year. Eisenhower passed an executive order that prohibited homosexuals from working for the federal government. This was an order, believe it or not, that stayed in place, Robbie, until 1995. Um, So at the time when this executive order was passed, 5,000 federal employees were immediately thrusted like out of their positions. They were forced out of the closet and then it just got wrapped up into the whole like anti-communist fervor where they like were unemployed, like they were unemployable. Um, and then at the time, like established businesses could lose their licenses for literally serving patrons that they knew were gay. So at wow. the time, this movement was called itself the homophile movement. And this is where you see kind of a split happening in, you know, as like the big hippie renaissance and all the anti-war protests and the Vietnam War, like it was burgeoning in this country. And a lot of the civil rights agitation was happening at the same time as gay liberation. Um, And so, of course, naturally, you saw fragmentation of these movements where you saw quite a bit of people wanting to get out of the subversive, like, like purge the subversive elements, orient themselves around like respectability you know, and wanting to just be accepted into the mainstream institutions, marriage, adoption, and the military. And so you did see this kind of separation happening at that point, um, I would say around the Reagan time where people were like saying, we don't want to be associated with this militant revolutionary type politics that incorporates like black liberation and anti-colonialism. And we want to just appeal to the nor- like the normalcy of like Americans, like we just want to get married. We just want to be able to do all the things that heterosexuals can do. And so you saw this happening back then. In fact, the famous Stonewall riots that took place um, it's, th- th- there's nothing that exemplifies this better than that, because this was like a trans led movement that, you know, it basically paved the way for the first pride parade, all of these things happened. But this one famous, um, activist, this trans right rights activist that was part of, um, a group called the gay liberation front, which was associated with the black Panther party. And they were doing really militant actions like sit-ins, marches, um, civil disobedience, she gets on stage um, during all of this as like a Latina trans person who was forced to do sex work because of her disenfranchisement with these institutions. And she basically was urging like anti-capitalism to be a part of this. And she was like denouncing like the white bourgeois like uh, gravitation of some activists at the time to just want to, you know, just be accepted and to like distance themselves from what she felt like was like a liberatory philosophy. And um, I had no idea like how integral the gay liberation front was at that time and integrated with like all the anti-colonial struggles, this kind of like international, this lens of international solidarity was really incredible to see. Um, And then, of course, you saw the backlash 
You mentioned Anita Bryant before. Now I'm going to read from the Washington Post to explain this backlash that happened after this movement had really took off. Um, 1977, entertainer Anita Bryant mobilized the Save Our Children campaign, encouraging church folks in Dade County, Florida, to support the repeal of a Miami ordinance that prohibited discrimination based on sexual orientation. So I guess this was the first like local municipality that tried to push back on these laws that had been in place, you know, for decades already. Reading again, quote, to the surprise of many, Bryant succeeded. The Reverend Jerry Falwell, popular television and radio preacher, was among her backers. In 1979, encouraged by Beltway Republicans, Falwell launched Moral Majority, a grassroots political organization for religious conservatives. The new voting bloc supported traditional family structures, nuclear families with a male breadwinner and a stay-at-home mom, and denounced feminists, abortion rights supporters, and people in the LGBTQ community. Their first goal was to elect Ronald Reagan. And after he won, Falwell attributed Reagan's 1980 victory to moral majority support. And of course, right at, right at the same time, Robbie, the AIDS epidemic started. It was just crazy timing because it just went right along with the backlash and like folding in all of this radical fervor in the country and this agitation, like revolutionary fervor. And it just got folded into conservatism and like the crackdown of like Reagan and law and order and Reaganomics and like basically the backlash against gay culture and this reactionary attitude from the religious right. And the AIDS epidemic really catapulted this, of course, because it was obviously seen as a gay disease at the beginning. In fact, this Washington Post article talks about all these stories that were written from mainstream publications like Newsweek that that really like it's fucking crazy when you see the language that these publications were using Basically saying, like, including Jerry Falwell's, like, talking points. Um, basically questioning, like, valorization of sexual freedom. That's that's basically what these publications were doing to bolster these crazy religious talking points that, yeah, this deviancy, this sexual deviancy is, like, what's leading to this epidemic. And maybe we shouldn't have really, like, ran with this new sexual mm-hmm. identity and let them run free. And, and so basically what it came into with the advent of like Reagan's whole fucking crackdown on everything that was good coming out of the 60s and 70s was basically this this notion that good gay people accepted monogamy and capitalism. The bad gays lived in these, you know, lived in this bohemian lifestyle. They indulged in this casual sex. They they were against like the the family structure and and they would die because of it. Like they they were basically being punished because of this lifestyle and that they would die. And so... Well, can I just say something? Yeah, about please, that? please. The dichotomy, I mean, I don't even remember that dichotomy even existing, honestly, when I was younger. All I remember is like the image being presented during the Reagan era and even like the Bush era, the first Bush era of being degenerates. I mean, like even this, the idea of a gay person um, being around children as a profession, like as a teacher, for example, like my third grade teacher. I remember very clearly, I think I was like maybe 10 or 11 by the time that became a controversy at the school. It was merely based on this idea that gay people should not be around children. And and it wasn't because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to discuss their sexual orientation and that would, could be conveyed as grooming. No, it wasn't that. It was that like they might be also like child molesters. Mm-hmm. That gay, there was a conflation during the Anita Bryant period where it's like 
they, they should not be around children because they are potential pedophiles. And that was sort of a thing that people actually used to really believe. And I do think conservatives largely evolved out of that mindset over time. I mean, I would hope, you know, I mean, I don't really even hear, even though conservatives have some wacky beliefs, like I hear conservatives being casually racist all the time. I don't hear conservatives being like casually conflating homosexuality with pedophilia in this day and age. We have such historical amnesia that we don't even remember like how militant people were back in the 60s and 70s mm -hmm. and the Black Panther Party and all these movements that were like armed and shit. Like it's so far removed from our perspective now that I feel like this is the same thing. Like somehow it got worse. <laughs> it was like when the gay liberation struggle like like took off, it was like uh, with all of these other really militant movements uh, that all merged together and then all of a sudden it just completely reset where all of a sudden it was like gay people are pedophiles and that stuck for decades to and the it was point like a where witch when hunt. we- gay, um, gay people are not just potential pedophile. Like at the same time, it was like they're, it's now combined with the fact that they are carriers of a deadly disease. Right. They're, they're pestilence carriers. And that theme of like a class, an underclass in society being associated with a disease, like bubonic plague, mm -hmm. like poor people, that's, that's a theme that really- I, I think people underestimate with AIDS, like in terms of that specifically, like smearing a sector of society with being like carriers of a disease. They yeah, it was dangerous. like they were treated like lepers. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, and I'll just wrap this up. I mean, just the fact that trans rights were really at the forefront of Stonewall with, you know, people like Marsha P. Johnson and the fact that this all took place in the broader civil rights movement and has kind of has been erased. Like the fact that people think like, oh, where did all these trans people come from? It's like they never left, dude. Like this was always here. It was almost just so that the gay liberation struggle became whitewashed in a sense to become folded into the normative institutions and practices um, but even so, Robbie, how funny is it that like people like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were still not accepting of LGBTQ marriage and stuff until relatively recently? Like, it's just funny to me that even that was too much for Democratic politicians until relatively recently, you know? <laughs> I mean, in a way that was so fucking ridiculous that Terry Gross on NPR actually had this like confrontational moment with Hillary about why she evolved on gay marriage. And it's the only time like one of these phony Democrats have actually been grilled in an interview about like just arbitrarily changing when it became safe to. Obama actually did it in a much more, I think really cynical and gross way that I think actually set the template for the corporate virtue signaling we're seeing now. And that was because he did, and I don't know if you remember this specifically, the It Gets Better campaign. Do you remember this? I don't. So this is before Obama actually came out and was pro-gay marriage. He actually did a White House campaign where he and several other people from the White House and inside the government got on camera and like talked about this LGBT struggle and how it gets better, like acting as if there's hope, like, like it's going to get better before Obama even changed his rhetoric on like being anti-gay marriage, which he still officially was. Now he hired actually Dan Savage. Oh my God. To do this campaign for him. And the fact that Dan Savage like helped facilitate this, it just shows how much of a piece of shit he is. And it's like, you're literally giving all these gay people hope 
to buy into this when the literally the guy hasn't done anything for you and he's still not even willing to say that he supports gay marriage. I mean, how fucking it's like Obama wanted to have his cake and eat it too back when he was still being very conservative in his rhetoric. I mean, it's gross. It's disgusting. Yeah. Disgusting. Yep. These assholes, these cowards couldn't even come out and support same sex marriage. What a disgrace. Yeah. And what Gavin Newsom was the one who got, um, I think, ended up getting like most of the political points for that because he he was like the first governor, I think, to to do it. Maybe he wasn't, but I remember him being sort of front and center of that. But yeah, I mean, the, and now you have this kind of woke washing. I mean, like the whole pink washing of Israel. It really is because of the LGBTQ persona that they've adopted and this bleeds over to america as well in terms of pride there's a huge rift of queer uh identified people that have a huge problem with the fact that pride is basically a corporate sponsored event like you see banks and defense contractors having floats at pride as well as like police precincts um, and of course, this brings us to today where it's like all these corporations with the black square and putting up the rainbow flags on Pride Week. And it's like so superficial. And it just all it does is tokenizes a real issue, but it doesn't get to the root. And um, and pride is a very divisive thing because basically it's an element of the selling out, I guess, of these revolutionary demands, especially trans people and people of color. Right. And working class people who have gained the least from, like, the mainstream acceptance of queer identity. You know, marginalized identities and sexuality matter. Like, all of this matters. And it all has revolutionary potential because it's all linked to class oppression and discrimination that are outgrowths, I feel, of the horrifically unequal society in which we live. And it's the same exact problem with adopting... Um, representation of marginalized uh, races and stuff into, you know, corporate boards and political and, and like the U.S. empires, like political class, because it's all about advertising, essentially, at the end of the day. It's all about superficial inclusion that doesn't address any issue or structure of why these people are discriminated against, why these people continue to be oppressed in this country, why it is that you can have 300 anti-LGBTQ bills passed in 2022 in local state legislatures. And you know what? There could be massive intervention from the federal government. As much as Biden loves to tokenize queer identity and trans people, it's like, well, where's your intervention, dude? You could very well say, no, we're going to ban all of this. Like, this is super discriminatory and crazy, but they don't want to because they don't want to step on the toes of these conservative psychopaths and the evangelicals and like the neocon think tanks that are pushing through these legis these pieces of legislation. So it's so hypocritical, self-serving and cynical every way you look at it, which brings me to, you know, Texas. Um it's just another horrific bill, Robbie. Texas Governor Greg Abbott on February 22nd directed. This is really fascinating because it wasn't even a law. This was simply Texas Attorney General having some non-binding opinion, basically, about um, how the CPS can come and, like, declare child abuse and, like, stage an intervention in your home if you have a trans child or or are or if you find out that like the family is giving gender reaffirming uh, hormonal therapy or whatever to a trans child. 
And so that was just some non-binding opinion that the attorney general had. And then the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, took it one step further and actually directed the Department of Family and Protective Services to like literally investigate gender affirming health care for transgender youth as child abuse. So basically saying the CPS or whatever the equivalent is in Texas can come to your home and potentially arrest you, like open an investigation if you simply have a trans child. If they simply think that you are encouraging any sort of gender affirming health care, um, this is just absolutely crazy. There is a guidance that Abbott issued that basically says that um, reporters are mandated to obligate and follow this interpretation of the law. After issuing the directive, Abbott then ordered Commissioner Masters, I don't know what the fuck that means, to operationalize it by investigating any any reports of gender-affirming procedures outlined in the directive. Um, He effectively changed the law is what he did, like, in a way that was, like, kind of illegal because there was no actual legislation done or, like, legislative process. And he basically just said, like, you guys need to start investigating families which essentially just sends a massive chilling effect through the whole public and anyone who works with kids that they could be prosecuted. So, um, you know, this is this is a political strategy to basically use and weaponize transgender people and LGBTQ people to motivate the right wing, just as this always we've always seen this. It always works because it's the natural target of Christian conservatism. It's like the family, the family unit, it's the most traditional institution, right? And that's the family and don't fucking come for my family. And it's the basis of everything we're talking about. It's the QAnon, it's the grooming, it's the outrage over Disney. It's really every outrage cycle that happens in these conservative circles. And it all comes down to this notion that like you're threatening the family unit. Um, And what it does is it has real life impacts. You know, trans people are extremely marginalized. There's so many laws that discriminate against them actively today. And it's it really has real life effects because one out of two trans people have reported instances of suicidal ideation or suicidality. I just think it's really unfortunate that once again, yeah, like people who are some of the most marginalized in society are being used as like pawns in a culture war for reasons that are really baffling to me that just seem very weaponized in a time that does not necessarily match up to this level of uh, hysterical rhetoric. I mean, it's it does not make sense. And I I, I do really wonder why this is being amplified to the level it's being amplified having people call their political opponents groomers as like a normalized thing is really strange and as some of these right-wingers are saying well it's like a tit-for-tat thing was like you called us fascists so now we're going to call you groomers i mean okay totally scorched earth landscape that there i just do i again i know they say this all the time but there is no coming back from that it's just more of that scorched earth like no semblance of concern for what's actually true or not. It's all an information war. Just smear and destroy your political enemy. And meanwhile, this guy, Ron DeSantis, is sort of becoming this populist hero while doing every single textbook thing that would normally be considered like 
a tool of the deep state or like some kind of neoconservative agenda. So anyways, that's, that's my two cents. Yeah. I mean, just reading all reading up on just the history of the struggle and where it is today. It just, it just made me sad because it's just like so many other things that have been, um, it's just whitewashed. We don't really understand the militancy behind it. We don't understand the potential of linking all these struggles together. And now it's just ridiculed by disturbingly many people on the left as well that discard these issues as irrelevant, as a distraction. And they aren't. I'm sorry. Just because they've been adopted in a superficial way by the ruling class, it's advertising, baby. It's fucking capitalism. Okay? Yeah, they're completely different. <laughs> serve different purposes i mean it's just like this matters this matters and we have to keep fighting for full liberation and we can't stop until full liberation exists and that is a very far cry than what we're going through today and we're just going back to where we were 30 40 years ago and that should be really disturbing to everyone that this is how easy it is to fall back decades that's one of the more disturbing parts is how quickly and artificially this was inserted and then just how the reactions it caused where it's like real parents now all across the country are buying into this rhetoric and they're actually thinking that their own children are being groomed in school. I mean, that's a really dangerous precedent to set. I mean, it's dangerous enough that it started originally when like, you know, gay people became like villainized, but just out of nowhere like this now it's just i don't know it has it's almost more disturbing in a certain way yeah no it is a boomerang effect especially for people who you know finally feel like they can be comfortable talking about their identity talking to their kids about this reality you know of, of the complexity of sexuality that it's really a spectrum you know that they might be confused about it just like what are these people supposed to do and it reminds me of that phrase of like, you know, California, the land of the fruits and the nuts. And it's like, wait a minute, let's break that down. What you're basically saying is that literally two pockets in California that are accepting of LGBTQ identity are like, it's fucking crazy. Like the whole state's out of control. Like all these fucking crazy lunatics live there. Like stay far away from there. And it's like, wait a minute. You know, my friend Ryan Wentz, uh, at Queer a la Mode on Twitter and Instagram, he was telling me the other day, he was like in Arizona, and he was like, you know, I went to like a gay mixer or whatever just to like feel out the crowd, and he was like, it was just fucking like really depressing because it shows you how little of a culture of like gay-friendly culture is cultivated outside of just like three cities. And it's like, if you're gay, if you're queer... Well, there's not really many places that you can go to fully be yourself, be who you are, date who you want. Like, it's a scary place. It's a scary fucking country in a lot of the cities, in a lot of the states. And like literally the vast majority of the country is extremely discriminatory and bigoted still. And so it is just comical that we even think that we are at a place just because we are kind of siloed off into the pocket of California that this is even an accepted mentality like that people have evolved to the point where they are accepting like i actually don't think that's the case and it is just scary to think that we have a really far way to go 
if this is how easy the backlash is where people could just fall prey to like the Jerry Falwell type propaganda that worked 40 years ago, um, we're in a bad way. We're in a really bad way. And it, it just shows you the need again to like really take this seriously and incorporated it into the class analysis that you have and to all the things that we fight for today. Yeah. And like, if you care about kids and you want them to be, have healthy outlook on like sex and to know what, uh, to look out for in case like a predator is coming for them, why are you trying to confuse them even more and like lower the threshold to a degree, which is, is just so vague and open-ended of what you consider some kind of grooming of just simply talking to a kid about a sexual orientation existing or that you have a husband that you're married to a man if you're like a a male yourself is somehow grooming it's it's just going to confuse children even more even if like i'm not even talking about like a kid trying to discover their own sexual identity if they happen to be gay and they're you know Mm -hmm. trying to discover that at an early age i just mean any child like who's not you know who's Maybe just like as straight as an arrow, like a, mm-hmm. even a kid like that is going to get messed up in the head from that their parents getting all weird about that. And parents right. are getting weird. You watch some of these videos from these school board meetings and them speaking. I mean, they they seem like they're really in a really bad place mentally. So I, I don't know what that's doing at home to their own children, but I can't imagine it's good. If what they're scared of is some kind of liberal indoctrination that's that's of degeneracy that's going to hurt their children. It seems like they're hurting their children more just by being like really on a hair trigger and really fucking irritable about shit. That's like not even happening. Just like shadow boxing shit that they watch on Fox news. Like it's, it's scary. It's, I just worry about those kids. You know, I'm not saying their parents are secret pedophiles. I'm just like more worried about the way that that's rubbing off that reactionary emotionally driven like reptile brain response to like right-wing media's rubbing off on their children it can't be good well so. these people have to blame some someone robbie for the state of the world today so you know they have to blame immigrants they have to blame trans kids i mean it's, it's really a sad yeah. it's a moving target and i just will wrap it up by saying that sodomy is still illegal in almost one third of the states in the country no way yeah Wow, that that's actually really great. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so the, that's where we're at. <laughs> Take well, it away. <laughs> well, thanks, everybody, for listening to Media Roots Radio. Remember uh, to become a subscriber and get access to our bonus content, which includes one extra bonus premium podcast per month. Go to patreon.com slash Radio, And uh, for as little as $5 a month or per podcast um, you get access to that bonus material so thanks for listening everybody and take care thanks you guys bye